good and bow our heads. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together as the body of Christ and your spirit to be with us and teach us as, as we look at this prophecy of the curses upon Egypt. And we just thank you for this night. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're in Ezekiel chapter 30, and we're continuing on with God's curses of Egypt. And again, we're going to set this stage. Remember last week we talked about a lot of the curses that have been pronounced have not even happened to Egypt yet. And one of the things you have to remember when you're reading prophecy is much of the prophecy is twofold. There's things that happen immediately to show that the prophet was telling the truth and things that are going to be future as well. And this is what happened when Jesus came as the Messiah. There's all these verses about him coming as a baby and dying on the cross and then reigning as king. Well, he is not yet reigning as king on this world. So we see this in all of this. We see bits and pieces where Egypt gets the curse immediately. A lot of times when he talks about Pharaoh, those curses have seemed to all be already established and many of the curses against Egypt have not yet been fulfilled. Uh, remember last week we talked about it, uh, Egypt being desolate for 40 years. There's not been a time when Egypt has, as a nation has been desolate for 40 years. Now much of Egypt is desolate, but it has always been desolate on those parts. And that would be no, no phenomenal prophecy if they're talking about that area. And that would be hundreds and thousands of years so we're going to be looking at the same situation here as we go forward into this chapter. So chapter 30, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, How you, how, how woe worth the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day, and it shall be time, the time of the heathen. And the sword shall come upon Egypt, and great pain shall be in Ethiopia, when the slain shall fall in Egypt, and they shall take away her multitude, and her foundation shall, shall be broken. Ethiopia, and Libya, and Lydia, and all the mingled people, the chub, and the men of the land which is in league, shall fall with them by the sword. Thus saith the Lord, they also that uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down from the tower of Sina shall they fall by the sword, says the Lord God. So we're going to stop there because there's quite a bit just in that little section to, to examine. So he starts out, it says, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord God, howl you and woe worth the day. So he's, and howl here means literally very loud, lamenting and wailing. And to, to woe is alas, basically, alas is the day. So he says, you're, you're having something that's coming and it is going to be extremely bad. And though we've seen things happen in the Middle East that are very bad, and we've seen even things in our country that are very bad, there's nothing that really fits the descriptions we're, we're going to read about. And he says, the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. And this is kind of an interesting phrase, the day of the Lord, which talks about even future for us. The day of the Lord is during the tribulation period when everything uh, comes falling apart. And I just did a quick study on the day of the Lord and just to, to talk about this a little bit. 
The day of the Lord will bring all, all the enemies low. That's in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, it talks about destruction in many. It's a major destruction. When you read the destruction about the day of the Lord, and if we read Revelation, you know that in the tribulation period, we've said that if you total up all those quarter people here, you know, the 33% of this group, you end up with about 66% of the population of the world being dead by the end of the tribulation. And we're sitting at about four, four and a half trillion people in the world right now. So you're looking at close to three trillion people dying in a seven year period. Oh, it's going to be bad all the way around. Well, yeah. Two out of every three people will be dead. You know, in, this, in our room where we have six people right now, there would only be two people left alive at the, at the end of that seven-year period. You know, it's going to be a major thing, and this is destruction. And God talks about that destruction. Isaiah 13, uh, 6 and 9, Joel 1.15. Zephaniah 1.18, 1 Corinthians 5.18 all talk about destruction in the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a major event that's going to happen in the future, and it will make all horrible events in this world look like they were just a play in the park. And we're talking things like World War II, all the all the killing of Hitler, all the killing of Stalin, all the killing of Mao Zedong, uh, Mao Zedong, whatever his name, Mao Zedong, you know, make, make, their, make their reigns look like child's play because of all the people that will die in that short period of time. And as you say, mention this with, you know, how much health hazard, what do you do with all these bodies? You can't even burn all those bodies in a, in a crematorium very well. You, you, you're the old bee mask. Well, if you read Revelation, there's, there's, there's uh, diseases, there's uh, floods, there's earthquake. Yeah, there'll be disease just from the death alone. So, we, you know, it's going to be a horrible time, and God talks about destruction. He calls it the day of vengeance from the Lord. Isaiah, Isaiah 34, 8 and 46, 10. The time is coming when he's going to deal with vengeance. Uh, talks about the day of the Lord being God's anger with no escape. In Lamentations 2.22, Zephaniah 2.2 2, 2 and 3, and, and 2 Peter 3.10. I mean, this day that is described in the, body of the Bible, the day of the Lord, is all pictured with great vengeance, great death involved with it. In uh, Joel 2.11, it tells us that none will abide during that period of time, and we know that two out of every three people is going to be a quite a quite a destruction when Satan's army gets, goes to fight Jesus as he returns. He, Jesus just speaks a word and, and, the, and the valley flows with uh, enough blood to fill it during the tribulation period. The Christians will be gone. Those who have turned to God and not taken the mark of the beast, a lot of them are going to die too, but probably not through the judgments because they're going to be beheaded and, and killed just because they won't take the mark of the beast. It's not going to be an easy time even for them. The rapture will take all Christians out of the world. There will be people who are followers of God. The Christians are gone. The bride of Christ is gone. That's why a lot of history puts at the feet of Christians a lot of atrocities that were done in the name of, of Jesus Christ, even though they had nothing to do with Jesus. Hitler had his own form of Christianity, and 
and brutalized you know, all kinds of people in the name of Christianity. The Catholic Church has brutalized nations and people in the name of Christ and, and not following the, his teachings of love and, and evangelism. So Christianity has gotten a very bad name because of things done in the name of Christ that aren't biblical. It already tells us they're going to have 144,000 Jews that are evangelized in the world. And well, there'll be people. There'll be people that turn to God. There will be some that see the light. Something that I think about, and I have no um, place to even follow us up. That if he took care of, um, in tough times, he took, like, when, uh, when, the, when, the, when they arrived in, Moses out of the desert, something like that. He provided things in there. And I wonder if miracles would come along. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there were miracles associated with those who turned to him. All of that is a possibility, and but it's something I don't want to see anybody gamble on because it's going to be tough. It'll be a really tough. Isn't that what Paul's talking about like when he says, like, you know, it's better not to be with a family? No, in that case, it literally, he's making the point of, if I want to, if I feel God's calling me to go to East Timbuktu, I've got a number, then convince my wife that we're supposed to go, and, and uh, used to be just take our kids, which means that you're not as likely just to jump. Now, if I was single and God said go to East Timbuktu, I'd go, okay, next plane, I'm, <laughs> I'm gone. Uh, and that's what Paul was saying. It's easier, and that's what he it makes the point. It's easier to serve God if you're just by yourself. You can do, he says, go, you go. Uh, but when you have a wife and a family, you have to, you must pay attention to your wife because that's your biblical role of, as a husband. And this is what gets a lot of pastors in trouble a lot of times is they start ignoring their families to serve God. They do not perform the job of a husband and a father to their family because they're so busy taking care of the church. And that's part of what it's about. If you if you're trying to serve God in the church and you've got a family, it is it is a tough thing to do, and it's a balancing act that you have to to maintain. It should be God, family, and and your job. Job should be number three, and yet especially men like to put job almost number one. They might put God first or not, but job almost always for a man comes first. And it's very conscious. You have to keep it in in place. Most people won't trust God. They'll, they're dependent upon their boss or the government or whatever, and they're not trusting God. And this is something where we have to be very careful. This is where we build our retirement accounts and all these different things, Social Security, but our trust cannot be in those things because they can be lost. In an instant, they can be lost and taken away. And so we want to be very careful that our trust is always in God. All right, verse 4, the sword shall come upon Egypt, and great pain shall be in Ethiopia when the, when the slain shall fall in Egypt, and they shall take away her multitude, and her foundations shall be broken down. And this was when Nebuchadnezzar came in on this particular one. They, their foundations were shaken. They were taken out as a major player in the area during that period of time. And Egypt and Ethiopia are often talked about at the same time. On your map, Ethiopia would be right where the word key is. <laughs> that whole block is where Ethiopia starts. It's actually a little further, little further east of there would be Ethiopia, but right in that area is Ethiopia. Uh, 
And so they're very much tied together. They're the two major civilizations in, Af in, in Northeast Africa, and then you go to desert. <laughs> so they, they've been kind of, they're considered in many ways, even though they're African, they're considered in many ways Middle Eastern because of how close they are and how separate they are from the rest of Africa. This whole area is, it plays a big part in biblical stories, which is why, we're, why we've got the maps to kind of help out. Egypt at this time was pretty much the mighty power, but the, but the Libya, Libya was up there where it's currently at, just, uh, just west of uh, Egypt. All right, and it says that they're gonna fall, and their shell foundations will be shaken up, and this is Nebuchadnezzar coming in. Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Egypt fight the whole time. The Medo-Persian Empire and Egypt fight, uh, and they're pretty much wiped out by both of those people, and they're just a minor player from that point on. And they've never been, never been a true empire the way they were before. They've been strong on occasions, but never been an empire. Verse 5 says, Ethiopia and Libya and Lydia and all the mingled people in, in Chub and the men of the land that is in league shall fall with them. So here we are talking about all the alliances that Egypt has. Libya is that western portion there. You see that Libyan desert. And Lydia, as far as most people believe, is to the west of Libya. Um, and this word mingled peoples is mixed blood. Egypt had a lot of mixed blood in it and has, has it had for a long time because they've had multiple dynasties in and out of Egypt. If you remember your Western civil, civ history from, from high school or college, whichever one. Uh, talks a lot about Egypt and its multiple dynasties that have come and gone. And they were, they've always been pretty much open to foreigners coming in and helping them. Uh, they're almost a, the, kind of a melting pot like America was for so many years where send us your people and let them become American. This word chub is one of those words we really don't know exactly what it means. means it literally means desolate waste. Uh, and nobody really knows. I looked it up in a number of commentators. I looked it up in different lexicons. And is that the city or like a state? <laughs> the literal definition of the word in the Hebrew is uh, waste, uh, waste, a desolate waste. So it could be anywhere. So it could be any city in that area. It could be any desert in that area. It could be you know, just about anything. So. Uh, and this is, a, this is interesting, and, you, and people will say, well, why can't they de define some of these words? And the problem with a lot of these words is, if they're technical words, you, you could lose the, lose the meaning of them. Uh, when I was in Baltimore, they, they did advertisements for a drapery company, and they named all the different parts of drapes, you know, the, and I can't even name them because I don't know what they were, but they're going, you know, the side drapes, the cross drapes, the, the sheer panels, and, and this uh, Australian that was doing commentary, she goes, well, we don't even have those words in, in Australian. And I'm thinking, yes, you do, you just don't know them. Just as I in English don't know <laughs> those technical terms. In Psalms, we see this a lot of times because it's musical terms. And in everyday writing, you didn't write mus musical terms in, in, in your everyday writing. Just as in English, unless you're into music, you're not going to know what you know, the treble clef is and the, the bass clef and the, you know, the, the different notes and the you know, faster, slower, and all these things uh, in there. You, you may not know them even 
even though it's in your own language because it's a technical term. Well, that's quite a stretch here from, um, from a desolate place to covenant land. I don't know how they came up with that definition. If it's talking about covenant land, it's talking about Canaan. But that's always in, in the Bible that would always be uh, the promised land or Canaan. Uh, so I don't buy that definition. Yeah, it's all in the Middle East. But they would have been associated with Egypt at various times because they aligned with Egypt and Egypt was a empire in that area. So even though he sent, the Lord sent them in Egypt, that couldn't be semi-covenant? No, not really. Egypt, Egypt in the Bible always represents the flesh and the world. No, never, never represents covenant. It's never been considered covenant, and that's why I would never go with that being that definition for that area. They went to Egypt because that was how God was going to rescue them to drag, take them out of the flesh and out of the world, take them out of the flesh and out of the world. It, it completes the picture. And God is very patient to create his pictures. Theoretically, even when Abraham was wandering in his lifetime, he was wandering in Egypt. Because that was at the height of Egypt's empire when Egypt controlled that entire area. So even in, even in Abraham's day, he was walking in an area that was vassal states to Egypt. So he was technically in Egypt for his entire you know, life once he left the Ur of Chaldees. So even though it doesn't identify it that way, you read history and you see how much Egypt's land now. Egypt held most of its land as vassals. They paid taxes. They were considered separate groups, but controlled by Egypt and part of their empire. So that's why Egypt doesn't really get the status of empire through the Bible, because it never directly held all that land. It just militarily held sway over them, and they paid taxes. So historically, again, if you look at maps of that period of time, you see Egypt covering almost that entire area. It was one of the first great empires. He had the covenant, with, you know, the Abrahamic covenant saying, those who bless you will be blessed and everywhere your feet, and those who curse you will be cursed everywhere your feet trod is yours and, and you know, all that, all, the, all that. So, but Egypt has never been associated with the covenant of God or a covenant land. It's always in the Bible considered the world and the flesh. Uh, not a place, it's a place, don't go back to Egypt, get out of Egypt, and that's the way we're supposed to live, not in the flesh, get out of the flesh. All the, all the commentaries that I would read never mention anything like that. Uh, if I read it, I, then I'd want to say, because it's so different from every other commentary that I use, I would want to know why they say what they're saying. Well, if it's covenant, then it would be talking about Cana, Canaan, but again, in the Bible, if it's talking about the promised land, it's either the promised land, Canaan, Israel, it's, you know, I've never heard it, you've never even heard it called covenant land, even though, because like Hebrew is not the same thing as Jew. Because the Hebrew people come from the, the patriarch of Eber. And Eber lived in the outside of Babylon, and the people that believed in God basically flow from him. And he was the contender for God during the time of Nimrod. 
as Nimrod was raising up the false religions, Eber was standing up for God, for God, and people traced their roots to the one true God through Eber, and they're the true Hebrew people, and it's not just the Jewish people that trace their lines through Abraham. And this is why when you get to the Midianites and the, the Persian uh, star watchers and kingmakers that follow one God, they're bringing their line out of Eber. Uh, China is said to have come from the line of Eber because for, for many years until recent, recent uh, uh, six or 700 years, they were a monotheistic dynasty following after God. Well, their language itself has a lot of the story, biblical stories in it, and the written language has a lot of biblical story symbols in their, in their language. It's been interesting listening to people over the years, you know, talk about different things on that. So, yeah, the stories were passed down through their language. Back to where we're at here. Uh, it says, the men of the land that is in league shall fall with them. So all the different people that are helping Egypt against Babylon were going to fall. And this is interesting because that's how bad their fall is, that every ally is going to fall with them. And that's pretty typical of war. When you, when you have the allies, the allies usually go down with the, with the one who started the trouble. You know, one of the ones that started the trouble usually, and all, the, you know, all their allies will fall with them. We saw that in World War I and World War II, where the allies defeated the, the uh, uh, Axis. <laughs> and each one that went against, you know, joined in, all fell. Uh, World, one, World War I had your, your Germans and your Ottoman Empire and uh, all of that fell. All the, other little, all the other littler places. Here's naming the big ones. The, the Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, Libya are the big ones that are, that are their support. But it would also include much of the Middle Eastern small countries that, that were under the sway of Egypt and, and stayed on their side as, as allies. So... Uh, so if God says, all, everybody on Egypt's side is going to lose. <laughs> and that we saw during the period of Nebuchadnezzar. They, they got beat, beat pretty sound and really put in their place. They're not going to be another power again, a major power again in the world after this, after this point. And they're starting to play some games, you know, trying to become a power again, but nothing, they're still not a huge player except in their region. And verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, they, shall also, they that also uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down from the tower of Selion, Aseline, shall they fall by the sword, says the Lord. And this uphold literally means lean upon, those who lean upon Egypt, because Egypt is a, basically second strongest nation at this time, besides Nebuchadnezzar. And people are flocking to Israel, are flocking to Egypt, including Israel, trying to get on Egypt's side, saying, "Help us! We need, we need help." So a lot of these little places all through the Middle East and everything were going to Egypt and saying, "Hey, we're going to be gobbled up. You know, we need your help. You, know, you, you gobbled us up several, several hundred years before, so we're going to let you come and help us now." So yeah, it, it wasn't a very good thing. But it says, "Those that lean on you will fall also." And in, in Jeremiah, the king is told, do not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and go to Egypt or you will, you will be punished by God. And he went and tried to go to Egypt, to get, sent money to Egypt to get their help and ended up 
losing his life and his kingdom to another, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar took him out of his office. We see that all of, this, all of these first parts that come down show us to be something that's true. And again, we have the Tower Seinei, which still there is no really strong definition on that, contrary to what you've got on yours in there. Most people, and this one I did find commentary on, uh, most people believe it's a, a town in southeast uh, Egypt and not the tower that was named Seon in the time of the Romans. <laughs> Verse 7. <laughs> they shall be desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, and her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are wasted, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt and when all of her helpers are destroyed. In that day shall messengers go forth from me in ships and make the careless Ethiopians afraid. The great and great pain shall come upon them as in the day of Egypt, for lo, it comes. Thus saith the Lord God, I also will make the multitude of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the terrible, the terrible of the nation shall be brought uh, brought to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. And I will make the land waste and, and all that are therein by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken it. So here we go. More, more trouble for Egypt and all of her allies. Uh, verse 7 says, and they, talking about all the different helpers and allies, they shall be desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, and her cities in the midst of those cities shall be wasted or destroyed. Here again, I think we're going back into a future prophecy for most of this. And this is why this is really hard to understand sometimes, because there's certain things you read and go, okay, yes, that's clearly happened. Okay, they were brought low, they were made base, their, their foundations were shaken. But there's never been a time when Egypt and all of its allies in that area have been totally desolate. Now, they're not the greatest neighborhood to live in. Okay, it's never been the greatest neighborhood to live in, but there's been cities, and there's been people traveling back and forth between the cities. So there's not been a time when we see this total devastation that's hit them. And we go back to the previous chapter where it talks about 40 years of desolation that has never happened. And we talk about the fire coming in to destroy it, you know, in this section. And I think we're switching now back to a future judgment. Some kind of, it's very much sounds like an atomic blast that's going to destroy the area. And again, if they're an atomic blast, they, they figure somewhere between 40 to 100 years of non-livable area. And so if you say God says 40 years of desolation, it fits right into the low side of an atomic desolate waste. You're saying at first that when the prophecy is given that uh, a part of it will refer or will be given right now, there may be others. It sounds like here that they're mixing the There's a lot of mix in here, which is why prophecy is a very interesting thing to try to figure out because you also have to know your history and say, did this ever happen? And even when you say it didn't happen, you have to be careful because you have to be totally knowledgeable that they didn't happen. And as I said, in everything I know about history, there's never been a time that Egypt has been a wasteland for 40 years. There's been times when they've been pushed down and, and beaten pretty good, but never a total waste. 
So you have to look at this and look at history and look at, uh, look at all this information and try to balance it out. Did this ever happen? The prophecy that a virgin shall give birth to, to a child that is used of Jesus was considered fulfilled when the king had a newly married woman who had never had a child before give birth. And so the Jews said, well, see, here's where, here's where that one was fulfilled. It isn't referring to the Messiah later down, and yet they also understand that it's the Messiah. So they, they get very, you know, hard to understand prophecy because you get the immediate fulfillment of it and a future miraculous fulfillment oftentimes so in it. Not take too much concern. Let's put it that way. It is always, it is always tough to deal with prophecy because of that mixed, mixed partial fulfillment, partial fulfillment and stuff that doesn't. Have you seen that a lot? Oh, you see it a lot. Okay. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, um, a lot of the minor prophets. You see a lot of this mixed. This section here is about as mixed and tangled as it gets. And a lot of people just don't know what to do with it. And I'm just going to tell you straight up, I, some of it is much of it is Nebuchadnezzar, but a lot of this is not Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, when it says it's going to make your land totally desolate, that's not Nebuchadnezzar because he never did that to them. He beat them and put them into submission, but he didn't make everything desolate. He didn't destroy all their cities and make it unlivable. There will be, they will try to spiritualize the prophecies so that they can make it look like he is the Messiah. Uh, and this is the danger of spiritualizing the word of God, and it's happening a lot. Even amongst good Christian teachers, a lot of times they spiritualize it and take, take the truth out of it. And if you, once you spiritualize the Bible, you can make it say whatever you want it to say because, well, this word doesn't really mean this. It means <laughs> this. And Jehovah's Witnesses have done that with 144,000 Jews. They'll go, well, it's not really 144,000 Jews. It's 144,000 righteous people that are going to go to heaven. Well, it says very clearly in the scripture that it's 12,000 from each tribe. So why did God go through so much distinction why, and instead of just saying 144,000 righteous people? He very clearly said 12,000 Benjamites, 12,000 Judah, Judah 12,000 from you know, each of the different tribes. And that, so when you start spiritualizing things, you've got to be careful. How can they not see that? I mean, <laughs> because their eyes are closed and darkened to it. Once you start accepting that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want to say. Again, once you start spiritualizing the Word of God, and that's why in the Bible, how to study the Bible class, the first rule of interpretation is if it can, if it can be literal, it is literal. Now, when it says that God's a, like, a, like a bird wrapping his arms around his chickens, his chicks, that does not mean God's a bird because it says like a. <laughs> it's poetic language. Uh, when it says that God holds the earth in the span of his hand, I, I listened to a guy who gave an entire message on how big God must be if, because the span is so many inches and if he can hold the whole world in the span of his hand, that means in the span of your hand is this much compared to your elbow and your legs and your height. And, you know, and he had God being some million feet tall or something. You know, it was a bizarre message because he took a verse that it was clearly not literal not everything in the Bible is literal, but most of it is. 
And if it can be taken literally, we need to take it literally. A great example of what used to not be considered literal is when the prophet and the two witnesses stand in the temple of Jerusalem witnessing against the people and it says the whole world watched them. Well, until about 20 years ago, that verse was taken as figurative. There's no way the whole world could be watching them. Okay, you know, we could go 40 or 50 years and go, okay, yeah, they're watching them on tape delay and everything. So let's go back 50 years. Before 50 years, it was like, it was definitely, you know, number one, how can the whole world be watching them? Because we didn't even really have TV going on. And now we go, yeah, there'll be satellite television channel, uh, you know, witnesses, witnesses 24 7, you know. Uh, so we, in our day and age, we look at that verse totally different than anybody has, let's even give it 100 years ago. You know, it's a, you know, however long TV's been around where you could watch, the, watch things on TV, uh, you know, the 50s or 60s, so basically, you know, close to 100 years. Anything over 100 years ago says, you know, it's impossible. You can, the whole world can't be watching these guys. It's got to be spiritualized. God is just using hyperbole that lots of people are going to watch it. And now in our day, we go, we can understand that there'd be a channel on them 24-7, watching it on their computers, their, t their phones, and you know, their cars as they're driving along. You know, we, we now know how that, could, that is a very literal term. So even when we're trying to decide if something's literal or not literal, we need to be careful as well. So something you consider not literal, like if you, um, you can move mountains, but you don't really take that as literal. God has the power of doing that, so I would take that literally. Yeah, I, God is going to move all the mountains in this world. And in, in, in Revelation, he says there's going to be a great earthquake that's going to level all the mountains. I take that literally. I think if we tap into it, we could have enough power to move mountains. And I think that's true. I think it's literal that if we had enough faith, and the, the problem is that we don't have the faith of it. Now, the application to that is that we move mountains, that are, things that appear to be mountains in our life. Right, that's right. Uh, I think God, if for some reason I had to have this mountain over here moved, God would, God would move that mountain. Now, I've never had the need to move a mountain, a literal, a literal mountain. But I'm not going to limit God on that, on that ability. Yeah. Well, no, we, we don't have any power, period. Because the verse says, if you have faith, the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be you removed and cast into the sea, and it would happen. So it's not us anyway. It is God who does it, and God has the power to do it. I've just never had a need to move a mountain. It's amazing. God, God is really talking about problems in your life. That is the general application that that verse is used at. But I think it literally means, Jesus literally meant what he said. If you had enough faith, you could say to the mountain, be moved, and it would be moved. And I think it is a literal statement. But again, number one, either I don't have enough faith, or I really never needed a mountain moved. Uh, you know, it would be nice if this mountain was moved, because then I could drive straight to my house and not have to go all the way, all the way around the mountain to get to my house. Uh, to get to my house would be like a 10-minute drive if I could go straight. <laughs> Uh, and not a 30-mile 30 uh, 30 drive to, to go around the mountain to the pass. But is it something I have to have happen? No, I'm not going to be praying for a mountain to be moved because it would know, be nice if we had a nice tunnel through it. But 
again, I think in literal, the term, the statement is literal. Jesus said, if you had that much faith, the mountain could be moved. Number one, we don't have that much faith, and I've never had a reason to move, try to move a mountain. But it really comes down to when you're reading prophecies, figuring out what has happened and what yet is to happen. And this is something I've warned many Christians as well. When you study eschatology, the study of end times, there's a lot of guys who will give you step by step, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. And I'm afraid that they may have the same problem that the Jewish people had and miss some valley in between that's not, not clear until you're in it. Uh, in our case, between Jesus' birth and his second coming is 2,000 years. And it's like if you look at, a, look at a mountain and you see the small hills and then you see the bigger hills behind it and then there's this huge valley in between them that you don't see because your perspective is incorrect because you're not high enough to see that there's a valley until you get over that first hill and then all of a sudden here's this huge valley that you've got to cross that you didn't notice before because you weren't in the right perspective. When you're dealing with prophecy, be very careful of people who are very dogmatic because they can, they can be wrong. Because you're looking into the future, you can only look at what God says. And even from our perspective today, we can see certain verses that kind of indicated that there was going to be a long, you know, a gap between the two. And that's stretching those verses because we know what we're in. But the Jews saw the birth of the Messiah, the rule of the Messiah, period. And no huge gap in between when the Messiah goes back and waits, waits for the evangelism to happen to build his kingdom. So be very careful. There could still be a long period of time in between certain things still happening. I don't know that there will be, but I'm saying be very careful about when you hear these people very dogmatically say, this must happen, and this is the order it has to happen in, and this is when it has to happen. Be very careful with it. I've been studying eschatology long enough to see how much it has changed over the years. Uh, because as the world changes, you know, different, different players. You know, we're now starting to turn to the, where the, is the Muslim world and Persia uh, and Iran and Iraq are starting to be big players again. And it's quite clear in the scripture that they always would be, but during our period of life between you know, Jesus' day to very recently, they've never been really big players. It's just been dead area that nobody was very powerful in, and now we're starting to see... Until the end of World War I. Yeah. Well, they were a power there for, in World War I. They died away. But even then, they only had about 400 years where they were a power, and then everybody kind of forgot about them. That whole area is not, not in play anymore. And now we're looking at it, well, yeah, it talked about this area, and it's back in play again. So be very careful when you're listening to these guys who get very dogmatic. This, is, this has got to be what it is. Uh, because they're understanding things from where we are at this moment and how will the landscape change in the future? We don't know. Um, so just be careful with it. You can make some statements. There are certain things we know will happen. We know that God, Jesus is going to return. We know that he's going to rule in Jerusalem. We know that the Antichrist is going to help establish the temple in Jerusalem. We're going to, we know that the temple worship will be reestablished. And Israel is desperately, at least with the ultra-Orthodox, trying to get the temple rebuilt. They're already, they're, they've already made all the tools for the temple. They're teaching the, teaching the people that have been identified as Levites and, and of Aaron how to 
offer the sacrifices. They're already in the process of doing all of this because they understand that you can't worship God without the sacrifices if you're not living that Jesus is, is the Messiah and, and fulfilled all the sacrifices. They have no way to get their sins forgiven, and they know that, even though the Jews at this point in time are, have taught good works. The Jews in this day and age have said, well, because we don't have the blood sacrifice, then your good works are how you earn your, earn your good, good relationship with God. And they've always been that tight relationship to law and works anyway. And they're going, well, because we can't do a sacrifice, blood's not that important, it's just your good works. But the true Orthodox who know the first five books of the Bible really want a temple and sacrifices going. That's what the reason is. The, the Muslims hold the, the Temple Mount right now. But obviously, I guess, I guess what I don't understand is, uh, I mean, that being in Israel, why they just, I mean, it would probably cause a lot of upheaval in the world if they tore the mosque down. If they tried that, the, the Muslim world would become completely unified against them. Right now, the Muslim world is fractured against them. Huh? Well, the whole world's going to be against them, and it'll, it'll come to that. But right now, they are not strong enough to have the whole world against them, and it's not worth it to them to cause that big an incident when there's nobody behind them that would support it. The Antichrist will come along. We'll do this as our last talk. The Antichrist will come along, and we do know for a fact that the Dome of the Rock is not built on the site of the original temple. The original temple is southeast of the Dome of the Rock. The foundation has been found and located by, by soundings. Interestingly enough, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel was told to measure the third temple and to not include the court of the Gentiles. And if you don't measure the court of the Gentiles, there is enough room for the for the because he said it's been given to the Gentiles. So there is room enough to build the temple on its correct site, not include the court of the Gentiles where the Dome of the Rock stands, and have both on the Holy Mount next to, each next to each other. That will never happen until the Antichrist comes along and says it will happen, and he'll just make it happen. And he's the master of all the false religions, so it won't be a problem. He'll just say, okay, you know, you're going to do it and they will accept it because it's his religion anyway. It's Satan's religion anyway. Now, why would he build those, uh, I guess I'm why would he, he bother to build the... What is, what is Satan's goal? Isaiah told us that he's, the reason he was cast out of heaven is because he said, I will ascend unto the side, unto the hill of the God. I will be like the most high. I, and basically he wants to be worshipped. If he creates the temple, which is not God's temp temple at that point because God, Jesus, fulfilled the sacrifices, he, in the middle of the tribulation, will go into the temple and declare that he is God, that he is the Messiah, and demand their worship. And that's when they will realize that they have been lied to and cheated and that it's not the Messiah that they, that they thought he was. And that is when everything really goes against Egypt at that point because they will, uh, Egypt, against Israel, because at that point they will reject the Antichrist and know that he is a false messiah. Up until that point they're thinking he's the messiah. He's, he's building up their, their rule and building up their temple. 
putting, putting the Muslim world in their place, you know, putting the temple up, allowing them to start worship again. But when he declares, I am God, worship me, that's when their eyes will be opened. The more chaos that can happen in that region for Satan, the better. Ultimately, he'd like to wipe Israel off the map. Because if he can get rid of Israel, then all the prophecies at the end of the book can't come true. So the, alt, the flip side of it, but in that he can't get rid of Israel, he will try to get them to worship him as their God, pretty much like Balaam did. You know, you want, you want them to get their curse, so send in your women and, and get them to start worshiping your gods, and, and their God will curse them. And God cursed them, and, then, and ten, tens of thousands died. Uh, and Satan will do the same thing. Satan has done that with Israel a lot over the years. You know, God got uh, false religions in, and then God uh, judges his people, and thousands lose their lives, and then they repent and start the cycle all over again, and the end times will just be one more event where they'll, fall, they'll follow a false god and, and come, back, come back to their senses when they find out it's not right. But right now, once Satan can you know, have enough power in the Antichrist, They'll just build the two temples. They might put a wall between it and divide the, divide the mount and have an entrance from one side for the Jews and another entrance for the, for the Muslims. Anything can happen. Uh, once Satan says, okay, this is what we're going to do, all the battles are going to start falling away because he's the one that's causing the strife, ultimately. But again, this whole idea of prophecy, we want to understand that prophecy is very hard to understand because it's all talking about the future. And it's one of those things of you look at it, you think you know it, you think you know it, and you really don't know that you've seen it fulfilled until you look back and say, oh, of course, you know, it was obvious. Here's where it was fulfilled. And this is why, like I say, you know, this idea that Israel is going to be you know, a total wasteland for 40 years, there's never been a time when Israel's been a, um, Egypt has been a wasteland for 40 years. And you know, we, hear that, we hear it all the time, you know, that Israel's not going to let this, let Iran get a nuclear weapon. They'll turn it, turn it into a, you know, a sea of glass before they do, literally meaning they'll drop a bomb on them and say, you know, say that it's not going to happen. And so we're going to see all of this stuff happening. And, and, and after the fact, the prophecy becomes obvious. And after the fact, we see Jesus met all the prophecies of the, of the uh, Messiah's birth, you know, Born in Bethlehem, called a Nazarite, you know, all these things that people never could understand. Well, if you're born in Bethlehem in a time when people don't move around very much, why would you be called a Nazarite rather than a, than a Bethlehemite? You know, and, it's, and he came from the city of David. He's from David's, David's loins. He should be a Bethlehemite. He shouldn't be a, He was born in Bethlehem, lived there for about two years, moved to Egypt, lived there for ten, almost 10 years, and then moved to Nazareth and was raised as a, from, raised in Nazareth. So, but again, that was at a time when people didn't move. It wasn't so long ago, even in America, that people didn't really do a lot of moving. You, you stayed in the town that you were born in and you pretty much stayed there forever. When I lived in, went in Maine, I lived in this little town in Maine and there were people that lived in that town that had never been more than 20 miles away from the town, ever ever in their life. And if you, if you had gone any distance, you were a traveler. If you had left the state, oh my goodness, you were, you know, you were 
you were a real traveler. You, were, you, you went to all these foreign places if you just left the state. Uh, and that was only <laughs> uh, 40 years ago when I, when I was going through that experience. So when you were on a farm that needed, that gave you everything you needed, there was no, really no reason to go anywhere. You'd go to the nearest town to, to buy the things you couldn't grow or, or make on your farm. And the guy who owned the, the store would have gone around and bought things from other places or at least had people come to him and sell him stuff. But, but uh, the average person had never, never went very far from, from their town. It wasn't heard of to, to move around. You had everything. Plus the fact if you have a farm, you couldn't go away because you, you couldn't leave your animals for that long. So you'd have to pay somebody to take care of your animals if you left. And you know, even in the early 1900s, you know, people living here in, in chloride to go to Kingman was a, was a huge deal. The train, I, I have a schedule in the train, the train took four hours to get to Kingman <coughs> from chloride. Okay, uh, I don't know how fast it was traveling. It wasn't traveling very fast. It was, and, and there's an article in the paper that the pastor left the church here in chloride to go pick up his wife. He'd be gone for four weeks. Well, he probably took a buckboard, you know, which he probably took three days, three days just to get to Kingman you know, three or four days to get to Kingman, and then fully loaded probably took a lot longer to get back. So it's, uh, you know, so this is something, you know, in our day and age, we don't even think twice about it. You know, as I'm driving back and forth, sometimes I think about, you know, how hard would this have been to, this trip would have been to be on, on horseback. Wouldn't have been doing it five days a week, it was, you know, because it, uh, it would have taken two days to get here on horseback at least. And even if you had a horse, though technically you could have made the trip in one day, you were not going to push your horse that, that hard and that fast because your horse was way too expensive to, do, to push that hard. You'd have had to have had some major emergency to push your horse that hard. But I have, I've seen lots of different things. You know, I've thought about you know, how hard it would be to make these trips and stuff and how it wasn't something you did every day. It wasn't something you did to, to travel around a lot. And, we're, and when we read this in, from our day and age, we go, well, what's this big deal? Yeah. You know, we look at this and say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, uh, you know, we think about the trip that, that uh, Mary and Joseph made from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know, in today's world, you'd, you'd drive it in less than a day. In their day, it was about a four-day trip, maybe five days with her being pregnant, five or six days with her being yeah, just an hour or two. So it's, yeah, and so, you know, we've got to keep that in mind. These were times when, you know, if you were on your own feet by yourself, you could probably do 20 miles a day. If you were in a caravan, you did about five to 10 miles a day. But we need to keep those things in mind and how hard the life was, was for them. It wasn't just an easy jump in your car and fix it. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for Hopefully we learned something out of the night, and we just thank you for that, and we ask you to bless this as we go about our business, and, and just give us a wonderful day tomorrow, and, and just a good peace in your son's name. Amen.